Welcome, everybody. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. Watched a movie this week. We are covering one of my childhood favorites. We are doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The reason we're doing it? Yes. Because we felt like <laughs> there's nothing well, really happening this week. We were stuck. This name floated across our desk. And as soon as it did, we kind of lit up and went, oh, wait. Oh, yeah, that is based on a book. So we thought, what an incredible opportunity. Let's have some fun, something bright and funny and and and, and really get to the heart of something that I, I think people really overlook is, yes, this was based on a novel. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it is about a toon-hating detective is a cartoon rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when he is accused of murder. So this is a hybrid live-action cartoon film, if you haven't seen this. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're going to be discussing, because of this film, uh, it kind of sits atop animation and cinematic history in the late 80s, uh, we're going to be discussing some some more technical things. And so, as always, we have immaculate show notes that have uh, our references and sources for everything that we speak about. But this week in particular, that might be of use to you if you're into that sort of thing, is we're going to be talking about particular tests and effects. Various on visuals. And this is a very visual thing. It's animation interacting with live action. And so if you want all the scoop on that, please click the links in the show notes. There's a lot of material here to share. This film, it was the most expensive film ever made when it came out in 1988. And that was held until three years later when Terminator 2 came out. Ah, wow. Okay. Which you wouldn't think, I mean, you think of this movie, but you wouldn't be like, God, that was the most expensive film ever made when it came right. out, but there was so much going into it. Also, hugely popular, it was the second highest grossing movie of 1988 that year. Oh my God. Um, but the one thing we're going to bring up later on is that it is one of the highest grossing films never to receive a sequel. And usually when something is super popular, Seriously, Hollywood yeah. snatches it up and says, well, let's do it again. This is an awesome opportunity to to open up this subject and really like be like, what, what makes this thing tick? Why does this exist? Because I mean, I'm sure there are yeah. people out there who yeah. don't understand, you know, even understand how the character came about. Like, so I'm sure some, some people think he is a legitimate 1940s cartoon character mm -hmm. when that just is, it couldn't be further from the case. So, yeah. So let's yeah. start with the book. This is one of the rare cases where the writer has preferred the film over his original work. Oh, really? <laughs> he, we'll talk about some of the sequel stuff and what he did with it after, but he was like, oh, that, that's, that's what I wanted to write, you know, <laughs> not this. <laughs> this guy is Gary Wolf. He was an Air Force captain in the Vietnam War, won a Bronze Star and two Air Medals. Oh, wow. Interesting, quirky dude. He has a large collection of carousel horses. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> just fun guy. He got the yeah. idea watching serial commercials with the animated characters talking to real people. Oh, things like yeah. that was like, oh, what if that was actually happening? So as far as the adaptation, the film is very loosely adapted. The book is called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? As some examples, there's no Judge Doom, the main villain, though his crony weasels. The Christopher Lloyd character. Yeah. Right? yeah. The cab that speaks. None of that stuff is oh, in there. It's, no. It is more of a serious mystery novel in the hard-boiled private eye stories. And if you're interested in those kind of things, we have an episode about Motherless Brooklyn, which delves more into that kind of crime noir genre mm -hmm. and the history of mm -hmm. all of that. Uh, so check that out if you're interested in that. The big change in the book versus the film is that it's not about animated cartoons. It's about newspaper comic characters. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, ah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so it's got like Snoopy and Beetle Bailey and Hagar the Horrible and, and newspaper comic strip stuff. 
that and not sense. the not the 1980s cartoon. And that, I mean that that makes sense just looking based on on just the medium itself. If you're you're doing with print and pages, <laughs> right? <laughs> there's a certain lingo that and connotations that just flow with that, and that is the same when you go to a medium like film and television. Uh, I'm I'm guessing that that has got to be some of that you know some of some of that reason why they made those shifts. Is, yeah. So the other big things is it's in the present day, so it doesn't have that period piece quality, but it's not really explained how this world works. It's just these characters exist in the same space, which is a huge novel concept, I think. In and of itself, it's like you could make something right. just based off of that. Oh, these aren't drawn. They're actually real. And the way that it works is they pose for pictures, and that's what becomes the comics versus like in Who Framed Roger Rabbit where they're acting in things, and then it becomes right. the cartoon. Yeah. And, you know, some of the other conventions of the newspaper stuff is they have speech bubbles that appear in real life and then disintegrate. And so if you're a person in the real world, you don't like that. And people are stepping on them. It like becomes almost this trash hazard yeah. for people. It's like litter. <laughs> and certain chains, litter. It, it still definitely feels like the undertones of like segregation or racial discrimination that the film has in the yeah. sense of like, oh, here are the tunes and here tunes. are people. Yeah. And the. <laughs> privileges that are not afforded to them and the lower status that they have. So that does still also fit in as far as the speech bubbles. It's used in the plot. So like if a tune character dies, his last words are still there lingering. Um, oh my God. <laughs> that's, that's also kind of featured in there. But that brings up the, the difference, which is, okay, well, how can they die? Like, isn't that the thing with Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It's like a tune can stretch and bounce and fling themselves. They can do all this cartoon stuff. Right. But in this, they can get shot. They're just like normal people out in the world, except they're cartoons. So there's this odd premise in the book that the tunes can create this doppelganger with psychic energy that runs errands and also does the stunts in the photographs that they take oh, for the weird. cartoons. Oh, they have so it's a, this, a weird stunt double, like a mm -hmm. weird clone that does all the things they don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. So they manage that through their mind and then it, it, you know, it could last for an hour or it could disappear in a day, depending on how hard you're able to concentrate on keeping this, this apparition is, available. This is trippy. This <laughs> yeah. is really trippy. This is so much more, uh, this is a bit deeper than I really ever expected anything mm -hmm. from this. Not like this is like, I want to sit back and like think about like what is the implications of all of this? Like, yeah. what is a what is a thought bubble disintegrating on the ground look like? Does it smell? Yeah. You know, like, well, and that's <laughs> probably why they picked it up because it is so novel and interesting and unique. Yeah. Yeah. It involves animation and things that they might you know be interested in. Roger is one of these characters who's like with Baby Herman is still there. Jessica Rabbit is still there, and then the detective Valiant is still there, but those are really the only characters that make the transition. Okay. Um, he's framed for this murder of his boss because he's not getting top billing in the cartoon. Baby Herman is getting top billing in the cartoon. Okay. So he's going to this detective to try and figure out he's being framed for this murder. And then within the first quarter of the book, Roger Rabbit gets murdered as well. What? Yeah. Oh my God. Because <laughs> Valiant goes to him and finds him dead with a bullet and his floating speech bubble. Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> in, <laughs> and that's he's just draped over the banister on the stairwell of his apartment. And so what happens is- I hope is, your last words were like who the killer was. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's, that's not what happened at all. Yeah, no. So, <laughs> so then this is where all the doppelganger the part there. comes in because the doppelganger was off running an errand and comes back to Valiant for help and is like, hey, you've got to clear- my name. And also there's time pressure because the doppelganger is going to disappear. 
Oh, within, whoa. Depending on how, you know what I mean? Because he's so dead. Roger's so like, doppelganger is stuck looking like he murdered <laughs> Roger <laughs> and is also going to deteriorate within a certain yeah. amount of time. Um, so all this stuff happens. There's, It's more very, like I said, crime, noir, him interviewing yeah, yeah. different people, that kind of stuff. But the ending, it turns out that Roger did kill his employer and wanted to plant evidence against the detective. Oh, but the detective oh figures it out in advance, stops it all. And then that doppelganger Roger deteriorates at the end, which fits more with the noir aesthetics, like the, right. the cr- crime doesn't pay, but it's never really resolved, kind of like the old Batman. like Yeah, the lingering ghost of uh, yeah. not being able to really write it <laughs> and finish what needs to be finished in the yeah. scene. So, but you learn something. And it's it, like I said, it's not even really necessarily silly. It's almost like a blunt, wry humor because of the improbable situation and the fact that it's cartoons and the speech <laughs> yeah. bubbles and stuff like that. But the story itself is not whimsical and Roger Rabbit himself is not funny. He's not trying to be a stand-up comedian kind of character. Okay. So yeah. none of that translates from what I read. That is fast. That is fascinating. Yeah. And totally, the- tonally, tonally very different. Mm-hmm. Oh my but the, gosh. I but couldn't the imagine. Premise, yeah. But oh yeah. I mean, and uh, you can certainly see the the things that they latched on to to mm-hmm. go, okay, this would make a family experience. We can use these characters instead of, you know, th- it, it is a light family movie. It's certainly what I pr- I do appreciate that it doesn't shy away from seriousness. Yeah. And it certainly has dark, even uh, fr- uh, frightening moments. Yeah. Everybody's um, like, oh, the Judge Doom gives me nightmares. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're dealing with like, and they really upfront present uh, the idea of like tune mortality. Uh, you yeah. watch the little shoe get dipped. Uh, and I mean, like they give you nightmares for real. So it's, yeah. like, but I appreciate that as an audience member is you're not treating the child or, or the adult as dip, you know, the, while it is fun and light, it it certainly has those moments that get very, very serious and yeah. make every audience member, no matter their age, really do some, some yeah. thinking and start feeling some, <laughs> and that- some, some really deep fears <laughs> and that that tonality the mixture of lightness and darkness sits interestingly i guess we have to talk about the historical context of this because it seems like oh this is a unique one-of-a-kind thing that has never been duplicated where does it fit before and after right in cinema right. and animation and i guess the risk for this film for what i saw it was it was instead of like oh this is a huge gamble it's almost like who cares like so in the 1960s, there was no longer this appeal for the movie cartoon, specifically because of television. So mm-hmm. we had a lot of like the animated sitcoms, like the Flintstones and the Jetsons, but those really only lasted until the 70s. But nobody okay. cared about the reruns from the 30s and 40s, the classic Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, right, any of that right, kind right, of right. stuff. And then as we go into the mid 80s, Disney is not doing well. This is like ideas that they almost might go under. Because of how little things are working out. You know, idea of resting on the laurels from the 40s, 50s and 60s. And now we're, you know, we're approaching the mid 80s and they and hold on. All of our classics came out 20 years, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so like what was going on in the late 70s, early 80s is the Rescuers movie did not do well. Fox and the Hound uh, and then Black Cauldron, which doomed its animation department. If you Mm. won't get too much into that, but that was like a huge failed effort from Disney. Yeah, you don't even know it. And then their live action situation where they're trying to play around with this stuff tron came out but it didn't do as well as they'd hoped cost right, a that, that was found a cult following <laughs> later yeah, on that didn't later help at the time that was that was that didn't help anybody's argument right. <laughs> and so audiences of the 80s at this point are also more attuned to sci-fi and horror 
Star right. Wars, Absolutely. Alien. <laughs> Star Wars is out. We're we're off to the races. Alien yeah. has come out. Alien, uh, Aliens comes out in 1986. So this is right. So uh, the question then is like, would audiences care about the tropes of film noir, the detective, the redheaded dame, this murder yeah, that actually reveals yeah. the corrupt citywide conspiracy? Like, what? Why would that even happen? So here comes the development of this. They immediately bought the book rights as soon as it came out. The book came out in 1981. They bought it. Disney bought the book rights. As we said, they could probably see some potential in it somehow. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the concept on on its face is like, okay, we're, we've got real live action people intermingling with some, you know, a cartoon on some yeah. level. Like that's, that's always been a novelty. But what if it was the premise? Yeah, yeah. Somebody's exactly. okay. We can we can get in on that. We can you know like establishing dominance on a piece of material. Yeah. So this guy Robert Zemeckis offers his services to be the director of it, but they're like, no, because. Because this is just just off of the off of the heels of Back to the Future. Well, so previous to that, he he offered his services. This is only 1981. The okay. only two films that he had made were box office bombs. He's right. a nobody. He sucks. Right. So they're like, we don't want you. So he's going to come back later, like you said. But we're we'll talk about that when he gets gotcha. back. But it, it's funny that once they bought the book, he was like, I want to do this, and they're like, No, you're not. Doing it. <laughs> The one blessing to accepting this kind of a story was because Chinatown came out in 1974, which was seen as a resurgence of that sort of crime, noir, corrupt city thing. So there was at least a hope, oh, audiences might be interested in this. So Disney is like, cool, we got it. We're going to develop some test footage and get some scripts going. It's the work of these two guys, Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman. And the things that they did after this, they did the movie Wild Wild West, which you get that quirky sensibility. Okay, yeah. They also did the Jim Carrey Grinch, which I absolutely love. I absolutely adore it. Absolutely. <laughs> right on, the, that, that will be an episode one day. <laughs> and then they, uh, they also did Shrek 3. So they're all over the place. They're a gotcha. great writing duo. And they had various drafts involved because as we talked about the book, they were trying to figure out who the villain was going to be. So they had Baby Herman maybe being the villain, Jessica being the villain, Roger dying because he dies in the book. How right, does that all work out? All those avenues. all these different kind of drafts. They even had Doom shooting Bambi's mom. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. All sorts of kind <laughs> I of I adore that. <laughs> mixing it with Disney history, but it's just a it's just a mess. But then they also have this test footage that they're doing to try and explain how this is going to work out. They use because nobody's every, ever seen anything like this yeah, before. We've, yeah. At this time, we've never even seen a 3D character uh, in the frame with with anybody, and let alone right. trying to bring over something from what's considered a different medium. Or there was a little bit like Mary Poppins had come out, and there's the whole penguins thing. But it just that was you know a small little half of a musical number, right? And situation. Uh, what what became the what they focused in on was integration. How does it actually? Feel Feel like the characters mm-hmm. in the three-dimensional space with them and that comes down to interaction what yeah. props and set dressing do are they bumping into or messing up or what what yeah. part of the clothes need to furl when he rushes by those types of yeah they found out that was the key they haven't even to go gotten shoot. to that yeah they haven't even gotten to that yet though at this point they're for still sure, in the sure. in the idea of we just got to see what this looks like interacting with people and how sustainable is it right. to do this so early behind the scenes comes from 1983 it only aired on the paid Disney channel at the time, which had just come out. And so lost to history, the intersection of people who had paid for the Disney channel, had a recording VCR, cared about Roger Rabbit to record it, and had the prowess to upload it to YouTube. <laughs> that that intersection is very small oh in terms of seeing this, yeah. but it finally resurfaced, <laughs> uh, came out in 2014. So I'll post, like I said, the link Wonderful. to it so you can see what they were trying to do 
with it. It's just sort of like pencil drawings moving around people. The revamp that happens as it's not really working out is in 1985, Michael Eisner becomes the CEO of Disney. Ah, yes. And he says, we need a powerhouse. Let's get Spielberg up in here. Right. He needs, we need some help on this. So Spielberg, the, the deal that goes down is he gets more creative control and the box office and Disney keeps the merchandising and the after effects of that. So Robert Zemeckis, here he comes back again. Because now he's successful. He's done Romancing yeah, the Stone. To the, and he yep. did yeah, and then he did Back to the Future. And so he's known for pushing the special effects world. And just for as sure. what he ended up doing, he ended up doing Forrest Gump. He did Polar Express. He did Contact. These movies that really push the limit of computer effects or practical effects and that kind 100%, of thing. 100%. Um, and of course, Back to the Future is... I mean, All if you just stuff. take it, okay, back we got Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit, uh, and Forrest Gump. Number yeah. one, what a range. Uh, number yeah. two, oh my God, three. Those are three classics in three different genres. Of- yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Known for their technical uh, and their storytelling, like beyond just oh, this yeah. is a cool oh yeah, oh It's like no, it's a, it's no. A every piece of them are 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 teachable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's on from. Back to the Future, but he wants this animator guy, Richard Williams, underappreciated name. He had done a lot of film title stuff, commercials, Pink Panther, various shorts. He comes out of London, and his whole thing is not animating on twos, which is where there's 24 frames a second. He animates 24 times a second, 24 pictures that he draws each second. And he's the one who's the proponent, huge of camera movement and he never just the animation of doing a profile view and the characters going back and forth across he's like why don't we treat it like an actual kid it's a lot more drawing it's a lot harder to do yeah um the yeah. last thing that he did of it of note was a short that was nominated for an oscar in 2015 and i'll post a link to it it's on youtube it's called prologue and it's all pencil drawing but it's one fluid movement between the characters it's like the camera never stops rotating around them and zooming oh, in and out cool. it's just amazing insane and unfortunately, he passed away last year, mm. but is an absolute legend when it comes to animating. Um, so he's so he's on, and then the test becomes: Disney says, "Well, we've done Pete's Dragon, we've done Mary Poppins, and then, like you said about the rules, here's the rules: you can't move the camera because it's hard for the animators to do the movement." They were they were worried about the perspective. It'd be, you know, can the can the animators keep up with the perspective shift of the camera? And the answer is yes. It just takes more time, which then equals more money. Yeah. Uh, and so and through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s into the into the 1980s, it had become in a kind of a generalized rule that moving the camera just wasn't. You don't do that. If you're going to do these yeah. types of shots, you can't do that. And so the filmmakers got so upset with, with that, <laughs> yeah. uh, in particular, Robert Zemeckis. So they want to move the camera and they end up shooting the, a lot, mo- all this live action stuff almost exactly the way they would shoot any other movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the thing is, is they, they had to understand that uh, it, it was just going to take exponentially more time mm-hmm. but having to kind of retrain everybody's thought of like no no it can work differently this can totally work mm-hmm. differently if we just say we need to if you make a yeah. concerted decision to do something different then you can mm-hmm. um and that, disney had said you know similarly to the camera it's like don't futz around with light and shadow like keep all the colors even so everything is flat like don't do anything crazy with that zemecca said like you said well we're gonna break all those rules yeah it's like, so, we're gonna shoot this like a normal movie um <laughs> so so but they had to prove it so this they're like well we're gonna do a test footage like they had been doing test ideas and there's also a link to this 
And you can kind of see the comparison difference between what Zemeckis and Williams ended up coming up with, where they're like, let's do something that violates all those rules. So it's Valiant, the detective walking down a dark stairway, stairwell in a back alley. Roger Rabbit follows him. There's car headlights. Roger Rabbit, they specifically made a klutz so that he can interact with stuff and knock things over and the cameras tracking around. Everybody said everything would be impossible. But then when they showed it, there were a few people in the room that are like, who's in the rabbit suit? Like they didn't even think it was animated because <laughs> it was lit so well and moved so naturally going downstairs while a camera is circling around. They were ecstatic like over this yeah. test. They were, you know, the people that, that, that were working on it were trying, wanted to find some way to put images of that test into the movie. I mean, they were so <laughs> ecstatic with the way that it actually came out. Yeah. And so, as you said, they have to shoot all of the live action first and then draw all of the animation over top of it. There's no computers involved. So here's where it starts with the live action stuff. The main actor, Bob Hoskins, legacy wise, we could say perhaps he's the template for modern blockbuster performance because he created the norm of acting with nothing. Like a yeah. lot of the times he's on a blue screen because in Toontown, there's nothing and all the main characters so that he's many interacting practices, with. Yeah. So many practices now that are just common day, even, you know, like you know, movies like The Hissing Booth probably has dozens <laughs> of visual effects things. Where blue they're actually and- empl- yeah, absolutely employing yeah. the exact same techniques that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is engineering, mm-hmm. that Bob Hoskin, the actor, is actually figuring. I mean, yeah. that, could you ima- can you imagine the opportunity there uh, as an actor in your field to be able okay nobody's ever done it you know like and you're you're finding you're finding how this kind of <laughs> yeah. works and what i think is uh, i wanted to bring him up is charlie fleischer uh mm-hmm. the guy that actually plays roger it was him and bob hoskin i mean i think the the camaraderie between the two their rapport mm-hmm. is just absolute magic and what was so funny is that charlie fleischer was on set for every take, for yeah. every moment of filming Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and for most, for largely all of it, he was dressed as <laughs> Roger Rabbit, just off screen, just around the corner, watching. Yeah. And he 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 kind of uh, pioneered what he called transprojectional acting, where he's watching Bob Hoskins because Bob Hoskins is doing nothing. Yeah, he's holding up nothing. But he's, it's actually he's, you know handcuffed to Roger, but there's there's just handcuffs there, no Roger, and but he's got to do block out the hole. He's got to move all the way around his set. He's got to hit all his marks. He's got to have this great big performance, all these big wild moves. Like and they, it, it's very physical, and so mm-hmm. you have then Charlie off to the side watching all this physicality and giving all the grunts and bups and and improving in the moment. The dialogue um, as well. Yeah, just everything that that would be as if he was the rabbit sitting in there and God, he's got the rabbit suit. And Hoskins had said <laughs> initially incredible. when he had seen the, him in the rabbit suit off camera uh, acting the dialogue, he was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. But then, of course, he's like, he's a genius. It helped so much. He's a genius. I also thought it was funny. The guy, Lou Hirsch, who did Baby Herman, he's like, if they think I'm wearing a diaper, <laughs> got another thing coming. Like, this isn't for all the animated people. Yeah, and and as no, far Charlie as- Fly, I I just I wanted to harp on him for oh, just yeah, a for second. Sure. I mean, I think he's just he's just so wildly talented and and forgotten. I mean, the soul of this character mm-hmm. would be so different with any other actor. I mean, and and Charlie. Um, and he came up as a stand-up comedian. So he, he was really? like, yeah, he was like, the purpose in my life is to make people laugh. So he's like, I relate more to Roger oh. than any other human character oh. I've played because that's at the heart of this is he's struggling with that as a rabbit. That's so um, funny too yeah. because I I kind of came aware of him circumvented in another way is he actually had a, a, a cameo role in um, David Fincher's Zodiac. Uh, he's so foreboding 
as mm-hmm. this like very, very menacing uh, character with a ton of question behind him. And I went home and I looked him up and I realized, mm-hmm. oh my God, that's yeah. Ro- he was he's Roger Rabbit. And yeah. I had no idea. It, and I instantly had just an immense respect for him mm-hmm. because uh, I only these two pieces do I know of his work, but I'm yeah. seeing yeah. this wild, absolutely wild range. And speaking and then, to, the, yeah. to the range of that, as far as Bob Hoskins' work, like we said, he's talking to nobody. He's talking to an empty chair, not an animated rabbit. They all went to mime training because it's like if you hold your oh, hand up. Oh, wonderful. Yes. If you hold your hand up in front of your eyes and look at your hand and then remove your hand, your eyes will then naturally gravitate to focus on what's beyond it. And it, and it shows on film. It's like you, you have to imagine that something is in front of your eyes to look at it and the weight of things picking them up that aren't there. You have to train your muscles differently to do those things. And Bob Hoskins was basically like, I had to learn how to hallucinate because yeah, if the character is yes. not there. It's not going to look right. And, and it, it, he was a master. Everybody was like, he was insane how he could do that, interact, look away and look back. And it would be like exactly where he was looking. At, I, at yeah. Apparently the, the animators were flabbergasted at how good he was at it. <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean, he's really, he he's said, really figuring it out. Live. He said he had to play. He played with his daughter so much before doing this because she had an imaginary friend, Jeffrey. It was about mm. that age. And so he was like, I'm pushing my imagination to the front of my mind all yes. of the time with this. And also, this is crazy. Working on this skill, 16 hours a day. These are film shoots. Eight months straight. I, I just couldn't even believe that. Like we talk about other films and things that take 30 days to film. Oh and we're gosh. saying, oh, that's it's like, eight no, it was months. eight months. So he eight started months. hallucinating in real life where he's like, I'd be talking to somebody and then I'd see a weasel walk around the corner. And so doctors were like, take a few months off. Oh. And he ended up not working for a whole year after making this movie because oh it gosh. was so mentally taxing. And oh, maybe yeah. that also ties into why it would be hard to get a sequel made if he's not <laughs> super pumped to yeah. go back into imaginary land. If you want to dip your toes back in those waters <laughs> yeah, <laughs> immediately. And then, of course, Christopher Lloyd is the other big one who was in Back to the Future. So it makes sense why he would be in Obvious, this one. Yeah. One of the most striking um, villains of my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about where Spielberg is in all of this. What the heck's he doing? Lord. He's popping up all over the place. <laughs> so yeah. his stuff, these are all the people in front of the camera. He's more behind the scenes on this. And he's the one who really got the studios to agree to license their characters. So this is the only feature film to have Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny in the same thing. He's the one going to all these places. Disney has 81 pre-existing characters that appear in this film. Warner Brothers has 19. He also got characters from MGM, Paramount, Universal, Fox, King Features, and Al Cap cartoons. All All these entities hate each other. (laughs) All these entities wish the other entity was eradicated from the face of the planet. But Spielberg's got this This will never happen again unless Spielberg himself makes a sequel happen and jams this down. Well, and some people it are like, never happen again. He did it again with Ready Player One, where there's all these classic 80s it's characters. It's true. It's true. <laughs> That's great. I hadn't thought about that comparison. It is very true. He's the only one that can do it. He's the uh, only one. <laughs> so that's how this all came to be. The ones that they couldn't get that they were trying to that fit into the same thing. Popeye's not in here. Mighty Mouse, Tom and Jerry, Casper mm. the Friendly Ghost. Mm-hmm. They could, they, those, whoever owned them didn't want them in there. They don't want to um, play ball. They didn't want to play ball. They missed out on the game. <laughs> and now they regret it. The <laughs> thing with the crew and all of this sounds like it's great, but they didn't know what they had. Jeffrey Price, one of the screenwriters, he was like, people would ask what they're working on in the lunchroom of Disney and they'd say, who framed Roger Rabbit? And people would go, oh, okay, good for you. 
<laughs> then they see they see, they, they Charlie, see Charlie Fletcher in, in the, the rabbit, rabbit costume in the cafeteria. They're like, oh, "Well, what yeah. in the world? <laughs> Good old luck to who framed Roger Rabbit." And then the other screenwriter was like, "You know, we we tried to do preview audiences stuff, but we have to we had to film it all, so it's like kind of loose pencil tests, totally unfinished animation." People walked out. It's like they freaked out. It wasn't they they could only show it when it was done. Oh so it's God. like they were unsure until the last minute of making yeah. the thing. And they that's have, the thing. It's like yeah. so they shoot it. I'm not. I'm not entirely clear, but they shoot it, and then it's a two year process of getting it actually animated and finished. Yeah. So it was 14 months of post production, oh and like we God. said, this is by hand, not a computer shot in this movie. Williams is very much the things that he's described. It's the production caliber of Disney with the character design of Looney Tunes and the personality and humor of Tex Avery, the the zany old cartoons uh, yes, and just yes. keep keep putting it in perspective they had to draw so they filmed the thing it's 24 frames 24 pictures every second they had to draw on every single frame everything that's animated if it's a crowd scene of 20 cartoons and then it's another picture and they've all slightly moved they have to redraw all of that and then hand paint it onto every single cell of film which this actually ends up being around 82,000 cells. So that's 82,000 custom hand-drawn paintings of immaculate detail on top. Insane as it is anyways. That's where it stops with most films. They then also have shading, shadows, highlights, this 3D look to match the lighting in the scene, as well as changing the focus between characters as they move from the background to the foreground, because this is actual film so now tur- this is all yeah. effects work that is second nature. This is like all these things are used constantly nowadays. Right. Like things that you would never even imagine. And with computers uh, like that. Yeah. This is a human being <laughs> with a white paintbrush. Yeah. Like figuring out what, okay, this, okay, this sheet of diffusion. No, that's probably 5% too much. Let's try, you know, like physically sitting out and looking mm-hmm. at it through, through the device. <laughs> yeah. And not a scroll wheel. So the, the thing that they, the term, the industry term that is now created by this film is called bumping the lamp and mm, what it is okay. it's, I it's heard of that yeah animators know it it's it's the industry term for putting in the extra tremendous effort to aesthetic that probably people won't even notice and i'll post a mm. link to a video that shows kind of how this lays out but follow with me okay. here verbally so moving the camera anywhere like you said richard williams he's like why isn't it done it's because people are lazy isn't it hard yeah it's twice as hard but we're gonna do it <laughs> anyways like so in this scene where the term comes from, Roger Rabbit and Eddie Valiant are handcuffed together and they're trying to figure out how to get them off. And they're in this storeroom underneath this bar. And there's a low hanging lamp that Eddie Valiant keeps hitting his head against as they're careening around the room, trying to figure out how to get out of these handcuffs. Uh And so just thinking about, they have drawn the characters. There are six other things that come about after that. So they have the shadow of the character, whatever is shadowing the character. They have a mask as a backlight, so the way that the character is being backlit from whatever light is going on in the scene. Then there's a shadow mat over top of the character, softened for what's going on to the character. Then there's another shadow mask as a cast shadow for what the character is shadowing in the environment. There's an interpolative mask that gives the character 3D dimensionality to round them out. And then there's an articulate mask for when live action elements go in front and interact with the animated elements and you have to cover that in a different shadow. So there's those six things. The bumping the lamp is just, okay, we could do this and they're sitting together and there's no camera movement and he's trying to get the handcuffs off. 
They bump the lamp five or six times in this thing, meaning he's hitting his head. The light is swinging all over the scene. You don't notice how difficult it would be to change all of that lighting, all of those shadows, right. all of the masking, all of the overlapping. They even like, get to the point real where- Real quick, just for our listeners, like, have you ever seen a, like a lighting experiment on somebody sitting stationary and the lighting source move around their head and what those shadows do from their nose, from their mouth, how they move long across one to side and then come back to the middle and move long across to the other side. Yeah. That light source is swinging these different angles on- every piece of this set all those shadows elongating and moving back <laughs> to the center moving now elongating out to the other side and moving back to the center i mean covering that, various items they're they're both of the characters are moving around one of them is animated handcuffed to somebody else who's not animated and doing crazy animated things all of this they even thought of like if you look and slow it down as his ears cross where the light might be shining towards the camera they're slightly translucent they didn't have to do any of that they thought of absolutely everything and they could have made it easy, but they made it hard on themselves because it helps you believe that there is mm. actually an animated rabbit interacting with somebody in wow. this scene. And that scene is not an, even an important scene. You know, it's not a crazy action thing. It's just them trying to get the handcuffs off. Yeah. Um, you could have taken your hand under the handcuffs at any time. <laughs> not in any time. Only when it was funny. <laughs> uh, all So bringing that up, that's that's the point. It's like. All of that stuff that we just mentioned is outside what Evan just said, which is the storytelling and the humor and the heart that the film has. That's what people are focusing on. They're not focusing on his translucent ears. Right. But you get it. So this is this had, at the time it was made, the longest closing credits. It was over 10 minutes really? and 800 cast and crew members. I see. And I wonder I wonder about that kind of thing every day, or not every day, but every time I go see a, like a new Marvel movie or something mm-hmm. like that and I watch all the VFX artists and all those types of things, I've thought about, God, these credits are getting long. That's funny. This yeah. had the, the longest credits at that point. <laughs> like I said, 82,000 paintings. 82,000. Um, so now- 14 months. Yeah. God, it's, it's done though. It's finally done. God. The CEO, Eisner, and Zemeckis, of course, disagree about the final cut. It's too risque, too many sexual <laughs> references. Zemeckis refuses to make alterations because, like we said, they kind of hold the leverage when it comes to Final Cut and Disney's got the merchandise and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But Spielberg mm-hmm. is on Zemeckis' side. Thank God. Yeah. I just want to thank these filmmakers for trusting the audience. Yes, it's a children's film, but we can handle <laughs> we can handle so much. Come on. Yeah. So Disney didn't think so. So it was released under their Uh-oh. Touchstone Pictures label instead of Walt Disney Pictures because they were trying to distance the, the Walt Disney brand from Ooh. this. Wah, wah. Um, uh, now that they've made it and it's out, it won the Oscar for editing, sound editing, and visual effects. And Richard Williams won a special achievement award in animation wow. for all of his work. And like we said, this thing was the second highest grossing movie of 1988. Rain Man beat it out somehow. And Rain Man. Okay. Okay. But how- okay, Tom. Okay. <laughs> you did it again. So, but <laughs> like we said before, how is this one of the highest grossing films never to get a sequel? Why was there yeah, not a sequel? Exactly. Exactly. How you know, th- There's never waned interest in this. So let's talk. We got to go back to the book. Our boy, Gary Wolf. He wrote a book sequel in 1991. Remember the film came out in 88 and the right, sequel is okay. called Who Plugged Roger Rabbit? Bizarre, because like we said, he loved the movie more than the first thing. So it shares continuity with the film. It's not a sequel or a prequel. It's just another, oh, wild. another story in that world. So He wrote a sequel to the film, not his own novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's Roger Rabbit trying to get in the role of a tune adaptation of Gone well, with the Wind. Kind of like Jurassic Park. Michael Crichton wrote the sequel 
he had killed Malcolm the, in in the first book, and but Malcolm is the main character of the sequel, right? <laughs> because he loved the Malcolm character in the movie so much. That's that's really I love, incredible, actually. In the in the sequel book, uh, in chapter twelve, Jessica Rabbit claims that the events of the first book were just a dream, so it just voids everything to do with the speech <laughs> bubbles and all. I mean, just completely. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, well, people like the Fillmore, so I'm just going to negate everything that I wrote. In the there you go. Book. <laughs> just use the characters that they came up with in Hollywood and there you go, Gary. Town and all that stuff. Yeah. So that happened. And I love in, ter- that. Okay. in terms of the- so he wrote the sequel, it comes oh, yeah. out ninety one. But in terms of the film sequel, Disney and and Warner Brothers and everybody's all in it. They had come up with some shorts to keep the brand alive. Cause they're like, well, there's definitely going to be a sequel thing to this. The big short. Right. And I think this, this kind of adds in, I've seen these shorts. I love these shorts, mm-hmm. but I think this goes, gets con- misconstrued of where they belong and how, like, <laughs> did they precede or did you know, like, yeah, so did they, they were, come before, you know, like yeah. uh, where most people, Roger Rabbit has faded into this, this uh, almost, um, like you said, like he's a mythology of Izzy exactly. from the 1940s. No, this isn't right. a Hanna Barbera cartoon that then they turned into. Yeah, so the it's shorts like a are paradigm. Weird. You're not even thinking about where he where he came from. He just is. <laughs> <laughs> so they had these shorts. The big one aired before Honey I Shrunk the Kids, which was got oh, everybody cool. still interested and involved. Cool. But the thing was, Spielberg wanted it to be before one of his films, but they wouldn't let him air it, and so he vetoed a lot of the things that end up coming about with the production of the sequel. But I think um. it's more than that from his side, which we'll get into. So s- there were several scripts that were commissioned. There was even one commissioned by J.J. Abrams. And this is actually oh, wow. the first meeting he ever had with Steven Spielberg was his pitch for a Roger Rabbit sequel. Hmm. He had never met Spielberg before this. And now, of course, they're peas in a pod. Like um, but that got to an outline and then nothing you also have to think of Spielberg and Zemeckis. They are creators, but they're they're Disney outsiders. They don't really have anything to do with Disney. But the fact right. that Disney co-owns the character with them makes it for an odd mix. Spielberg right. is also known for doing one-off things that he then never returns to. <laughs> so as the scripts are progressing, there's a prequel version that takes place in World War II where Roger Rabbit learns that his dad is Bugs Bunny. And it's sort of as playing with the crime noir thing. It takes a jab at the propaganda films of Disney and Warner Brothers during that World War II era where they'd use Daffy Duck and Mickey Mouse and all of that to promote the war effort. Spielberg. sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was a full script. Spielberg was not involved in that at all. He didn't want to do it because he was he had done Schindler's List and he's like, I'm not trying to satirize Nazis or make light or have anything to do with involving this subject matter. Right. <laughs> you, same, can't, yeah. you can't win the Academy Award for Schindler's List and then turn around and make a cartoon about yeah. <laughs> satire yeah. of World War II. <laughs> yeah. And and the film industry during World War II. So he could not be involved right. in that. He had also started DreamWorks at the time, which is now a Disney competitor. So he's not interested in really working with them to right. do a collaborative thing. Yeah, he doesn't want to help them make yeah. some big success when he's <laughs> trying to make a company that wants to take some of that market share. Yeah, exactly. So all of that factors in. And then there's another sequel that's come about, not a not the World War II prequel. There's a sequel idea that was seriously considered in 1998. But here now, CGI is coming in and animation is no longer interesting. So I found right. there's a screen test from 1998 showing a CGI Roger Rabbit interacting in a room with stuff. What? Which, I feel yeah. like I might have seen this. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if I saw this. It's very this short, is, uh, but the, the the CGI they realized 
would probably not be worth the price because it's too expensive at this point because mm-hmm. it's so early on. And they're like, what is even the point? Yeah. Because the whole thing was that it was animated based on the old 50s animation. Right. So if you're doing CGI, what is that referencing? What does it say? What, does <laughs> right. it say? what are you saying? You so know, that, like, yeah. So then that went down. And as recently as 2013, there was a pitch with Roger Rabbit and Mickey Mouse coming up through vaudeville, like them working what? In that frame, it's based on it's a remake, sort of, of a 1952 film called The Stooge, um, but that never went anywhere. And then Bob Hoskins passed away in 2014, yeah. So he could no longer be involved in anything. Zemeckis said, "Oh, there's a good script somewhere," but he's just like, "I can't imagine Disney ever considering making it now because of how, like we said, how dark yeah. it is, how yeah crazy it is." So it's not lost. And the big point, I guess, would be the legacy of this and what we don't even realize. So this thing came out in 1988. 1989 is the start of the Disney Renaissance and the modern age of animation. The Little Mermaid came out. Obviously, it was being worked on, but people had an awareness and an affinity for cartoons and feature film cartoons, not just television and sitcoms. Exactly. Exactly. The 90s saw a big resurgence on what what an animated movie really could be. Mm -hmm. And it's this kid-friendly musical that's reigning supreme. And then, of course, we have Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Hercules, all of that stuff. Also created a renewed interest on television for Disney and Warner Brothers. So DuckTales, Chippendale, Darkwing Duck, all that stuff with Disney. And then Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, Sylvester and Tweety Mysteries. They're coming back with their old characters. Now, in, te- did, in cartoon television. Roger never really conflated with these other things, though. And I feel like Animaniacs consumed a lot of those. Almost, you know, yeah. At some point, well, all these characters went in and out of that door. But, uh, you know, it feels natural that Roger would live there with them and they were, you know, would be in that universe. But I don't think yeah. that was the case now that I remember it. I don't think no. Roger was present. Well, because Disney partly that. owns it and Animaniacs yeah. is an entirely Steven Spielberg thing. Yeah. yeah. Some other, some other, yeah, animation. I I want more. I want there to be more Roger. He's kind of just like he's stuck in this like tug of war and almost. Well, he almost just lives in that one world, and there's no way to to bring him out to other things. Yeah. Um, But as far as the other influence that we don't even think about, 1989, the next year, Simpsons became the first successful primetime animated show since the 1960s, since Flintstones and and Jetsons and all that stuff. And actually, the gal who did the voice of the shoe that dies became the voice of Bart Simpson. Yes. So she's (laughs) directly tied to both of them. You could posit to say... That you know, with the success, the may I mean absolute major success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988, 1989, maybe audiences were getting primed to actually attach to uh, animation again, yes. and that that might have actually set up The Simpsons for yes. for that long staying mm. run. That and then hopefully <laughs> this will blow your mind. I didn't realize this. Nickelodeon founded Nicktoons, their cartoon arm, in 1990, and then Cartoon Network was founded in 1992. So basically oh everything we know oh of my God. animated movies in terms of the Disney Renaissance and animated TV shows was all predicated on this thing succeeding. Now ni- 90s cartoons have their own place of nostalgia. They really, really, really do. I'm only now realizing that that really only comes to be because of Roger Rabbit. Because yeah. Roger Rabbit has gotten audiences' attention in 1988 89 they want more and more fresh stuff like mm-hmm. Roger Rabbit is fresh as, mm-hmm. as as nostalgia as it is. It's cutting edge fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, audiences are hungry for more of that. That's that's fascinating to think that Roger Rabbit really you could really boil it down in a way you could look at 
yeah. the 90s cartoon boom through the lens of Roger Rabbit. That's yeah, exactly. crazy. And then it's, but it's sad he doesn't get to like live and enjoy and all that. You it's know, almost like, beautiful because it's like here's it this is, one thing at the at same one time. Point, absolutely, the pivot absolutely. point where they really encompassed. It's a love letter to animation to the things that that Williams and Robert Zemeckis loved come from this completely bizarre book that isn't even almost <laughs> related to it. <laughs> but just the the idea that there's a hope that animation and people can live together, and then yeah. there it is embodied in real life, where now we're able to enjoy it further than the 50s and 60s. Yeah, even if he just stays right there, I mean, he got to. I mean, he really injected a whole new a whole new life. Yeah, in, into the medium. So I found that sort of as as what it means for art is like take the chance to bump the lamp in your own work mm -hmm. and what you're doing. Like they, they could have made it easy. It wasn't easy, but they took right. the chance. It, it wasn't a, the rule. It wasn't a rule. It was just harder. Yeah. <laughs> no, making it harder for yourself. Like they didn't exactly like, yes. Yeah. Because eventually somebody will notice and it yeah. will mean something. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Taylor. That was a Thank blast. You. Thank you guys for sticking with us. I hope you loved that. Reach out to us on Instagram at IlliteratePod. You never know what our next episode is going to be. Send any suggestion, whatever you're reading, whatever you're watching, whatever you're excited about coming out. Um, you never know when we'll pick it for an episode just like this one. So can't wait for next week. We'll see you there.